Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Good day, good afternoon, good evening, good morning, whenever you happen to be listening to our podcast, you're welcome. Um, this is Rated LGBT Radio, and I am your host, Rob Watson. Um, today we are returning to a topic that we can, we have discussed before. It's an extremely important one. Uh, that is the topic of quote-unquote, major air quotes, conversion therapy, reparative therapy, um, any supposed pseudoscience therapy program in the United States that purports to change one's sexual orientation. Um, It is a therapy or a a practice that is done oftentimes under religious banners. Um, And so there is different controversy on the part of uh, conservatives that this is a freedom of religion issue. Um, invariably, it victimizes um, teens and people who are under 18 who are thrust into these programs uh, without really their consent. Usually somebody who has either been suspected of being gay um, or has come out and their families throw them into it. Um, To date, 20 states and almost 70 municipalities in the U.S. have passed laws to protect LGBTQ youth from such therapies. Um, Today, we are going to talk to uh, Matthew Shurka, who is the co-founder of Born Perfect. And Born Perfect is an organization that has um, amassed a legal team that is working to fight these uh, therapies across the country. I know for me personally, I got involved in this um, years ago before any states had passed legislation against it and California being the first to do so. And um, I was writing articles for Huffington Post um, uh, when the bill was in process in the state legislature Um, coming out as a gay dad very much in favor of this bill passing uh, and even got into a little online debate with the head of the uh, California Psychiatric Association. Uh, That association originally came out against it and then reversed and came out for it, uh, which was a good move, and that passed. And California was the first in the nation to do so. Um, Matthew uh, obviously has had a lot of firsthand knowledge of this, um, having been put into such a program when he was young. And uh, we're going to get to him about what kind of horrors he endured as a part of that and what motivated him to carry this forward as a cause um, to go up against. But before we bring Matthew on, I do want to welcome on my beloved co-host, the esteemed journalist, Brody Levesque. Brody, welcome to the show. Hey, good afternoon, Rob. Good afternoon to our listeners, uh, wherever you may be, or good evening, as the case may be. Uh, Today has been another rough day, as the 
Global pandemic continues to rage, particularly here in the United States. Governor Gavin Newsom in his daily press conference in California announced that there were 115 deaths in the previous 24 hours, which is a significant increase for the state of California. Earlier today in his press conference, Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York announced that the results of a serological blood test in 19 counties of the state of New York, over 40 different centers and 3,000 people, showed that at least 21% of the population of the state of New York, which includes New York City, has actually been exposed to the COVID uh, virus. Now, these tests are reliant on uh, antibodies, which means that you've had the virus and you've passed through it. Uh, New York has experienced a little bit of a leveling off uh, in deaths. However, they're still averaging about roughly three to 400 a day. We'll get the final numbers in. At one point, it was as high as almost 1,000 deaths a day. As of yesterday, across the United States, there have been 856,209 cases with 47,272 Americans who have lost their lives to the COVID virus. Uh, President Trump has assured the nation that they will be stepping up efforts uh, to get more testing supplies out to the states that are in critical need of it. While that's going on, there's ongoing controversy over some states' governors, including Brian Kemp of Georgia, making decisions to early open uh, the state from the restrictions of the stay-at-home orders, which have now been enacted in all 50 states, which has created quite a bit of controversy, uh, even generating uh, a comment from President Trump in yesterday's briefing that he did not agree with that decision. It looks, based on numbers according to what Dr. Fauci and the other experts at the CDC and NIH are telling, those of us in the press corps, that stay-at-home is, in fact, working, that limiting contact to others is essential to beating this virus down. The other, of course, part of the problem is that this is only wave one. Most of the experts, including the head of the CDC, are saying that we need to buckle up because this fall during the beginning of flu season could actually be worse. In conversations with uh, the CDC earlier today, I was told that we're looking at still 14 to 18 months out on a uh, possible vaccine. Although there is uh, two uh, laboratories working on this, one in Germany and the other uh, in France that are further developing uh, what could potentially be a vaccine in a much shorter period of time. But even they are optimistically saying maybe 12 months at the outset of that. Um, in LGBTQ news, Rob, the thing that's kind of got everybody struck today was an announcement by the conservative equalities minister in the United Kingdom. And uh, the Tory minister uh, had made the announcement that she's going to, uh, uh, as part of doing what they call the Gender Recognition Act, um, disallow juveniles from transitioning. Um, and her comment directly, her name is Liz Truss, Minister Truss said, uh, finally, which is not a direct issue concerning the Gender Recognition Act, but is relevant, making sure that the other 18s are protected from decisions that they could make that are irreversible in the future. This is an argument that we have seen repeatedly 
uh, particularly from the uh, what we call uh, TERFs or the trans-exclusionary radical feminist groups and other groups who are opposed to transgender rights, uh, not only just in the United Kingdom, but of course in the United States and across the globe. Having a Tory minister make that kind of declaration is um, not unsurprising, but at the same time is a setback, and it also puts uh, trans youth in the United Kingdom uh, at risk. Um, and that's uh, so, really Brody, good for a new summary. Yeah, Brody, when you say that uh, the Tory has put a prohibition on transitioning, what part of transitioning does that cover? Does that cover them um, dressing, you know, uh, you know, taking on their real identity, or is it uh, physical, um, medical transitioning? What what are they trying to make illegal? Essentially, what would be happening in this particular case, uh, what the Tory minister is suggesting, uh, would be medical in nature. Um, and the problem is it would remove access uh, to, you know, provable treatment uh, for anyone suffering from gender dysphoria, which is its medical terminology. Uh, this means blocking access to um, cross-sex hormones, puberty blockers, things of that nature. Uh, the other part of it is, is that it would kind of limit the ability of the uh, National Health Service, which is the uh, countrywide health uh, care provider in the United Kingdom, uh, their providers would not be allowed to uh, work with these kids in that venue. And now there's questions as to whether or not that would also include health care in terms of uh, psychological needs and other needs. There hasn't been any uh, move in terms of uh, what we call presentation, uh, which is actually in many ways a completely separate issue uh, when you get into the political venue from this. Um, it, it, there seems to be kind of a set aside when it comes to that. So presentation isn't targeted quite as heavily as uh, the medical aspects to this. And of course, the medical aspects are, in fact, very much a crucial part uh, to the entire, you know, viewpoint for a trans kid. Right. Well, especially since a lot of the hormone blockers actually prevent them from having bodily changes. Um, I mean, it, it's sort of the opposite of what that ruling says. In other words, it delays things so that they do have time to reflect and know themselves um, before their body starts physically making, theoretically, some decisions for them. Um, how? What is the role of the Tory for those of us Americans who are not familiar with the um, British system? Is that the equivalent of a judge? I mean, how 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 pervasive is this ruling? Well, it's it's a, Tory is a descriptive term uh, for what would be the English version of the Republican Party. A Tory is a conservative, uh, and this minister is part of uh, Boris Johnson's cabinet. She answers directly to the Prime Minister. Uh, Britain has uh, been undergoing a considerable back and forth on this Gender Recognition Act. Uh, which has been under consideration by Parliament, uh, and her job is implementation of the Act and recommendations on the Act. Um, so essentially, she's holding a position, uh, I guess the closest American equivalent 
would be uh, to uh, a cabinet level secretary of a, of, a, of a department. So it's when I say Tory, I'm using the political vernacular uh, for a conservative in a particular party. In this case, uh, the party in power in the United Kingdom, which of course is the Tory party, the conservatives, as opposed to Labour. Uh, the Labour's party roughly equated to the Democrats to a point. So, um, so this could be legislatively changed by them um, if uh, powers to be in the UK want to fight it. If if they could get the uh, the prime minister and they could get um, you know others to back this in a in a parliamentary. Uh, way, then there would be a way of reversing this particular thing. But, you know, the Gender Recognition Act and the reforms that are being posted with this, and this kind of, in a way, also um, plays into what our guest will be talking about, and that's the whole revolving argument uh, around a person's sexual orientation or gender identity, um, which in the United Kingdom generally is different than it's handled here in the States. Uh, but, you know, looking at it, um, uh, realistically, this is kind of the same type of attitude that we've seen in the problems here in the U S and the thing about this particular, uh, this particular issue and why it's extremely relevant to the U S, uh, is because a lot of the turfs and people that are very much opposed to a gender recognition act and, and are vehemently opposed uh, to gender affirmation by minors uh, are being directly funded by conservatives and the evangelical crowd here in the United States, uh, including the Alliance Defending Freedom, the Heritage Foundation, and other conservative groups here in, in the U.S., so, and TERP organizations as well. So, um, you know, all things considered, this is, you know, part and parcel of the American organizations exporting, you know, their particular peculiar brand uh, of pseudoscience and ugliness overseas, uh, in this case to the UK. Right. Well, yeah, it's the the anti side. I mean, there's a thematic through line between what we're going to talk about today in terms of conversion therapy and what they're purporting to do, which is to stand up for the rights of teens who cannot stand up for their own rights. Um, and theirs, unfortunately, I think is very ill-founded and creates the same sort of harm that we're talking about with conversion therapy um, because it leads the teens to mental illness, suicide, and, um, and basically a very miserable um, uh, teen existence. Um, with that, let's uh, bring on our guest. Um, this is our guest is uh, Matthew Shurka, um, and Matthew is the co-founder of Born Perfect. Yes. Matthew, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank welcome. you for having me. We're pleased to have you on. Our pleasure. Um, so, Matthew, uh, take us back to your own history as a, as a teen yourself and the coming out process and how you yourself ended in up in one of these conversion therapy programs? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I grew up in the suburbs of New York City, which some people may find surprising uh, just because New York is such a liberal center. Uh, but, I, you know, I grew up 30 minutes from Manhattan, 
And despite all that, um, my parents uh, were naive and had a conservative perspective or a naive perspective on what it meant to be gay. And when I came out to my father at 16 years old, he told me how much he loved me and was really supportive in that moment. And it was the following day that my father had this panic of what it meant that his only son uh, could be gay and live a gay life. And he began um, getting opinions from different therapists here in the New York City area. And so in his search, he met a licensed professional who explained that there is no such thing as homosexuality, that anything LGBTQ stems from childhood traumas. And because I was only 16 years old and I, have, I was younger and less experienced sexually, that I would have the highest probability of overcoming my same-sex attraction. And my father came home, and, and this, was, this was music to his ears. Uh, for my father, this right. meant that there was an opportunity that I could still end up straight and that I should be, you know, he, he's going to pay for it, of course. I'm a, I'm a, maybe not, of course, but as a teenager, my dad was going to do it, whatever he could to, for me to live a straight life. And so I began conversion therapy in Manhattan uh, at the age of 16, and this is only 2004. And um, one of the things just, that yeah. they did in this therapy was they um, instructed you to stay away from your mom and your two sisters. Um, what, uh, on what basis did they propose that to you, and how did that play out? So, yeah, so, you know, these are – there's we have – licensed professionals who are doing conversion therapy and then there's unlicensed like a pastor or a life coach that is claiming they can do this work. And so in my situation, they, they explained that in this theory that something in my childhood had caused this and it can be something as subtle as, you know, distant father and you're too close to your mother or, or an overbearing mother or the other extreme of the range of things that could have happened in my childhood, maybe I was molested or raped as a, as a kid. But somewhere, somewhere in this range of things, it caused my homosexuality. Uh, lucky for me, I had a great upbringing. Uh, I think my parents did a pretty good job. There's, there was nothing really that stood out as, a, as trauma. And so they immediately categorized me as, you know, uh, too close to my mom and my sisters. I was, I'm the youngest of three, and I have two older sisters. And my father worked a lot, and I was distant from him, but nevertheless, we had a good relationship. And so the immediate instructions were, I'm going to spend as much time with the boys as possible, whether in the male figures like father, uncle, or the, my peers at school. And they, I know there's a lot of irony in that, but the reason they told me that was they wanted me to understand my masculinity and that men are my peers and not women or girls or are not my peers, you know, basically telling me, don't be that high school kid with all the girlfriends. And what they really wanted me to understand was one, make sure I see women or girls as my opposites and not to pick up any effeminate behavior. And as you just said, the instructions were not to, to speak to my mom and sisters. And I, and I actually wasn't allowed to speak to them for and it la that lasted three years. Um, oh my I God. think it just opens up just, yeah, I think it just, that just opens up a little bit of how conversion therapy really began and last, I mean, lasting to this day, I'm, you know, I'm a 31-year-old man today, um, 
so the impact that had on all of us as a family uh, was tremendous. No, that, no, that's that's uh, that's horrible, and um, e- even that has some some lasting ramifications. I'm sure. I mean, it's um, uh, <laughs> on so many levels. I mean, one just uh, on terms of the concept with your parents um, being a parent myself. Um, you know, parents, we always worry that something we're doing um, is going to have an adverse effect on our child and to get blamed for something that we think is going to make our child's life harder is, is a burden in itself. Um, yeah. Matthew, what, what did you, from that experience, what scars, emotional, mental scars, do you feel like you've carried forward from having been through that? Um, I think the hardest, more than anything right now, it's, it's funny to look at it like that. Just, you know, I, I think I'm in such an amazing place in my life and I've grown and learned so much. But the thing that like sticks with me is there's always a little bit of distrust. Uh, as, and, you know, I have a great relationship with my mother and my father today, and I over, I've overcome so many obstacles. You know, I, I did contemplate suicide. I was in conversion therapy for five years from age 16 to 21. Uh, I was estranged from my family for years. You know, there were so many things that I had to go through. So, and even though I, we've rebuilt our relationships and I have a great relationship, there's so many moments where I catch myself um, – not trusting people, their opinions or their, their thoughts or some behaviors or actions. Uh, And I, I am reminding myself to trust them and they, you know, and that love is there and that we, I am their son and we are, we have grown as a family. Uh, The other thing I would say that probably lingers, lingers even more with me just as an individual, uh, you know, I am ambitious and I'm career driven and I want to do great things in my life. And it's just, I still have these moments where I look at myself and I think a lot of LGBT people think about this, whether there was conversion therapy or not, but the amount of time that I spent trying to fix myself or other people fixing me and then going through the pain of it and then overcoming it. We're talking about a, a decade to 15 years of my life to get to exactly where I was when I was 16, when I first started, which is right. I have a bright future ahead of me. <laughs> Here I am. Um, so I am, here I, I am. am. I'm anxious to get started. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, no. It's um, I I worry about that for anybody having been through that process because I think those of us who were lucky enough to not, um, we can be a little bit cavalier about it. It's like, oh, great, you got through it. Didn't kill you, makes you stronger. You know, boom, boom, boom. But um, I've had experience with people. Um, the author Preston Grant. Um, I became friends with, he wrote a book about um, um, sort of a a tell-all about what it is to be gay from a historical, emotional perspective, Um, but he also had been through kind of a horrific conversion therapy as a youth, and um, those those demons plagued him even after being such a strong advocate and doing all that things, and um, just a few years ago, he took his own life, and it was again wow. the 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 darkness that he just could not shake from 
having been put through that. And his was much more one of the religious perspective, quote unquote, conversion therapies that, uh, that did that to him. Um, is, is, are those numbers, are the, those ramifications of mental health uh, part of the legal cases that you and your team have been um, successful with? Oh, of course. Um, you know, ending, ending conversion therapy has become the fastest and, fastest and strongest movement or cause, with, I should say cause, within the LGBT movement. We passed our first piece of legislation in 2012, and since that first uh, legislation, which was in California, as you said earlier, uh, 20 states and over 70 cities have all passed similar legislation to outlaw conversion therapy. And one of the factors, there's, there's several factors that have had this, the momentum grow so quickly, but one of them is the urgency of the impact on the youth, uh, whether it's mental health and uh, suicidality, uh, and how it is hurting specifically families. Um, and that has really moved legislators and people in general who have not realized how prevalent conversion therapy is to start taking action on the issue. Yeah, it's one of the aspects of it that has always bothered me a lot, and I've written on this, and um, it's not often discussed, but a lot of the people who are the heads or who are position themselves as quote-unquote therapists or experts in this reparative therapy, conversion therapy process, are oftentimes men who um, claim to have overcome their own um, same-sex attraction. In other words, you know, yes. I've, been, I've been healed of this, therefore, therefore I am going to carry this forward. Um, most of us who are, are gay and have come to terms with it and know the struggles of repression and denial and, and then self-acceptance um, pretty much are aware that it never goes away. Um, so what gets set up with these so-called counselors is you have somebody who is not truly healed. They're just repressed. And then they get mm -hmm. into situations with young men and um, a lot of actual sexual abuse ends up happening under the umbrella that this person is trying to heal the, the younger person of their homosexuality. Um, what, what is your experience been in encountering that kind of situation? Yeah. Um, it's a vicious cycle. Uh, it's real and it exists. Uh, and yeah, we are, yeah. The, yes. You know, we see religious figures who are promoting conversion therapy. There are some therapists who purely are making profit from these, from this so-called technique. And then there's those that you just said, gay men who said that they've cured their own homosexuality are now ex-gay. And, you know, it's just, it's a, yeah, it's a vicious cycle. I think these men never made peace. Um, I, I believe our laws are stopping these practices. And 
they're being accountable for, but those those people need just as much just as much support as those youth, which I think is terribly sad. Uh, the good news I, I can add is we are seeing those therapists, specifically the ones that say they've cured themselves, are coming out of the closet, one, denouncing conversion therapy, and two, coming out of the closet as gay, lesbian, or trans individuals. Um, and that's right. a really telling sign. You know, what we, and it's been happening as these laws have been passing. You know, Exodus came down. Um, oh, my God, his name is, now his name is slipping my name. The, the, the last president of Exodus came out as a gay man. Uh, and Exodus ran the largest, I don't know what the right word is, ring or community or uh, conversion therapy programs in the country. And for him to publicly state that not is he only closing, his, shutting down the doors, but also is a gay man. And every year we have very notable conversion therapists shock the, the, the communities they are serving. And they're not just relig- religious figures. They are licensed practitioners. Uh, yeah. And so I think I'm answering the question. I just want to, you know, I, I think I just yeah. wanted to acknowledge yeah. how, how, terrible, how terrible it is. It's basically those people. You know what it, it comes down to, I think? Um, I spend a lot of time thinking about this and I work on it directly. You know, there's nothing more painful, and this goes for all LGBTQ people, there's nothing more painful than losing the community you're from and being LGBTQ threatens that existence and seen it time and time again, especially with adults that who have lived openly gay lives and then choose to do conversion therapy as an adult, they never were able to maintain a strong community or ground their community, whether it was within the LGBT community or losing their family at home. And there's this reoccurring theme that I see in all of my observations, wanting to feel connected and conversion therapy in some, I know it sounds so weird, but it's a place where they develop a community, but they never actually cure anything Mm -hmm. or heal anything. Right. Um, You know, and yeah, and I I can go into those details of what a vicious cycle that is, um, where really people should be taught and, given the opportunity to love themselves as they are and be accepted in a community. No, that's, that's a really good point. And I've, I've heard that. I mean, because it's, 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 there's a, a camaraderie, be it dysfunctional that, that kind of occurs there. Um, you know, and I, it's, it, it is, it's both sad, frustrating and, and um, difficult. I, I've seen things like where they've had these, um, trying to pull up like a March on Washington where, you know, they were going to have an yeah. ex-gay day and, you know, they were going to have tons of people and then like five people show up and um, the conservative uh, radio hosts and all that who are behind it come out and say, well, it's because my ex-gay friends, um, it's because of those radical homosexuals that will abuse them and attack them and everything else. And I read between the lines on that and going, you know what? I have a feeling your ex-gay friends are not as ex-gay as you think. And um, <laughs> by showing up there and being public, they're going to get recognized by people that go, oh, yeah, that's the guy I um, did last week. You know, 
Um, yeah. you know, so it just, you know, it's, it's a little, little ironic, but, um, uh, Matthew, tell us about, um, so you, you, you got through that process. What, what was the end of it? How did you kindly call it and say, no, this isn't working. This isn't right. And how did that lead you to the development of born perfect? Yeah. It really makes a difference, the fact that I was 16 when I started conversion therapy. I really was lost in knowing who to trust. Was it my family? Was it the licensed professional who was treating me? I think it would have been a different case if I was 18. You know, you know when I was in conversion therapy, I believed that the treatment was, was working at, at times. I believed it would work. I thought it was going to end or walk out of conversion therapy as a straight man. I, I actually gave it my all. And we hear that with a lot of people. If I was maybe 18 or 19, you know, maybe I can entertain my parents for some time until I made some of my own money or went off to school or figured out some scenario where I can be on my own. Uh, and so being that young does have an, it had an impact on me. It had an impact on others as well. And so, as year after year went on uh, of me being in conversion therapy, I knew that I was not changing. If anything, my attraction for men only got stronger, um, maybe slightly deprivation, but more so I was going through, pu- <laughs> going through puberty and I was becoming a man and what I was attracted to it was clear. And in my last two years of conversion therapy, age 20 and 21, I felt confident enough to challenge the therapists who were treating me, ask them questions. Uh, I saw four total, and three out of the four, you know, told me that they were ex-gay, that they had cured themselves. And I began to challenge them and ask questions, and they all, um, they got stumped. They didn't have an answer. They all, here, let me put it this way. I wanted to meet success individuals, successful individuals. I wanted to meet men who had become straight. And so in my request, they, they did introduce me to other men who went through conversion therapy, uh, married women, had kids, and I would have a one-on-one conversation, and they all admitted that their attraction has not gone away. And they have learned to live with it and have a so-called heterosexual life. And that was probably the biggest reveal to me the whole time because that's not how conversion therapists describe their work when they're getting new clients. Right. And it was the first time where I was like, wait a second, then this actually doesn't work and I'm going to have to live with this. And that was the, the whole, like everything began to crumble down, come crumbling down about the validity of this working even my own therapist admitted to having same-sex attraction, <laughs> the one who's supposed to be curing me. And some of them remarried, some of them didn't. And their lives, you know, as I was old enough, older enough to see it, their lives were not really put together the way they described. They were not taking their own medicine, so to speak. And that gave me a lot of confidence to walk away. I, I didn't come out immediately. It took, to, it took me another two to three years. Oh, two years. Like, I left conversion therapy at 21 I came out of the closet again at 23 um, and that year was, you know, I was, uh, you know, I, I went through so many layers of, of 
of undoing what I went through in conversion therapy. I came out of the closet really reluctantly. I thought it was, I thought I failed. I thought I was, a, you know, I failed and I lost and I'm giving in to the now gay lifestyle and I have to figure this out. And going, you know, going to see therapists and understanding what an, my first experience with a psychotherapist, I had no idea what a therapist actually does. Um, and trusting them and trusting my employer. I had a gay employer uh, living in New York at one point. And, you know, I just got ex- discovered a whole new world um, that was not available to me. And that same year, uh, just right when I turned 24, I made a YouTube video for the It Gets Better Project um, where I talked about bullying, but specifically in regards to conversion therapy, if someone's trying to make you change, you know, it was about the It Gets Better Project, you know, stick it out and it does get better. Right. And that right. video uh, ended up on like, in the evening news in New York and on many web channels. To my surprise, I had never had a YouTube account. And that changed everything. You know, um, I ran home that night. I saw I got a lot of I got a lot of phone calls and emails from different people who knew me who saw the articles. Um, and it was only like a four minute video. And I went home and my face was plastered on the cover page for Huffington Post about you know that my video made its way around the blogosphere world. Um, and it was really the comments that blew me away. Uh, the comment section became like almost like a forum where people were sharing their conversion therapy stories. And I had never been exposed to anything like that. And in the real moment of realizing I'm not alone in this. And so there was right. with that in those, in those weeks ahead, several organizations had reached out to me. And one in particular was the national center for lesbian rights. And they had, they were, they had, they were just in that moment had passed California they had me hop on board to support them. And for the next two years, we started working on legislation. And then together, we created Born Perfect as its own campaign, um, which I'm a co-founder of, uh, and, I, I, and I oversee the Born Perfect campaign. Um, but really, NCLR, um, they, uh, they were, they were the, the people who got behind me to support this movement and get it going. And it was their legal team that was behind it. Wow, that's amazing. Um, and and you you have racked up, to your point, um, enormous success um, in the interim um, being part of that. I mean, it has been um, uh, mind-blowing how, how quickly this has moved compared to other, other things that, that have been worked on um, by the community. Um, what, what, what do you remember as being kind of your greatest feeling of success um, as part of Born Perfect. Oh, wow. Um, there's been so many... It's uh, a good question. Specific to Born Perfect, I think, I think it was the moment that Barack Obama um, announced his support publicly and the White House even... It, it was actually... Um, uh, oh my God, I'm not saying her name wrong. Julia Barrett, that White House correspondent, who uh, asked all of us that they would want the White House, the White House as an organization, wanted to make its own video on conversion therapy and the support to end it. And I just, I was actually at a birthday party, and I didn't know. Uh, I knew he was contemplating, you know, making a public statement, 
and I got like a New York Times notification. This is 2015 about Barack Obama, and I was in tears at this birthday party. I get the chills just even thinking about it. Um, <laughs> because every by 2015, everyone in my everyone in my my personal community, my friends and family, had known how the work I was putting in, and people were just screenshotting and like, oh my god, and I. I almost like in a panic, you know, got on the phone with the lawyers that we're working with. And from 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. the following day, it was news interview after news interview after news interview to talk about what Barack Obama's statement meant, what was to come next, how, you know, and um, it was mind-blowing. Um, so not just, like, is it great to have a president acknowledge an issue that's so near and dear, um, but if I look back at being alone, you know, I, you know, I was in conversion therapy for years. It was such an enormous secret of mine, um, you know, because I'm trying to become straight. I wasn't telling people, couldn't tell anyone I was go- what I was going through. And even when I came out as a gay man, I wasn't really, it was not something I was proud of. I didn't really share with other gay men or other LGBT people I became friends with that I went through this horrific experience. And to see the, to see a pr- the president of our country make such a statement uh, in support for all those people who mm-hmm. are suffering in such a way that people, the general public may not know uh, is profound. And it was, um, I think that was what was so enormous, the, the, the contrast of where I was and where I am in that moment. That, that's amazing. That, that's astounding. Uh, it was astounding he did it, but it was astounding that, you got to be there front and center for it. Brody, you have any questions? Well, I, this is an issue uh, that I have been involved with as a journalist uh, since about 2007, 2008. Um, I am friends with Wayne who's the executive director of Truth Wins Out. Early on, uh, we were targeting an organization that was founded in California in the early 90s, known as the National Association for Research and Therapy of Homosexuality, which is basically the kingpin organization at the time for anti-gay uh, promotion of the city of science. It was founded by Joseph Nicolosi, Charles Socrates, and Benjamin Kaufman. All three of them were licensed um, psychiatrists or psychoanalysts, uh, And in 2006, the American Psychological Association had stated that there is simply no sufficiently scientific sound evidence that sexual orientation can be uh, changed. And they targeted NARS in particular. Uh, NARS itself was later uh, found to be uh, and labeled a hate group by the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, There was a case uh, in Jersey, uh, Ferguson uh, versus Jonah. Jonah is an acronym. Uh, it stands for Jews Offering New Alternatives to Homosexuality. Uh, and that case actually led to the state of New Jersey uh, finally outlawing the practice. And overall, it's always been pseudoscience. It's always been problematic. Uh, and as uh, Matt pointed out, it's, it's partially driven by the religious right uh, and partially by people that believe it in terms of pseudoscience. And again, this is an orient- this is a thing that you know nowadays we're confronting because of you know folks tackling uh, the trans community and trying to use the similar type tactics and similar phraseology in terms of 
transition and gender identity for the trans community. Uh, recently, we've got three local jurisdictions that have clamped down hard. In February, uh, Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, passed an ordinance banning it. Covington, Kentucky in March, and most recently at the beginning of this month, Tallahassee, Florida. So there is groundwork being laid, and as Matt pointed out, we do have 20 states that you know, have actually banned the practice. But I think the thing that really is important that we need to continue to get the messaging out there and, and to get people to understand that, you know, it, regardless of what their religious beliefs may or may not be or what they may or may not know, there's absolutely no scientific grounding at all whatsoever for this practice. This practice is, in fact, harmful, and this practice does, in fact, lead to especially LGBTQ adolescents, and that's folks between the ages of 14 and 24, uh, to kill themselves, commit suicide. Um, And particularly now it's problematic because of the COVID-19 crisis uh, because we have a lot of LGBTQI youth uh, who are now at home, out of their schools. They're away from their affirming safe spaces. They may be in a home where conversion therapy is being talked about. And the Trevor Project uh, told uh, me and and a few others in the press that at this point they have nearly doubled their uh, telephone traffic on their, you know, crisis lines with, you know, the kids with depression and anxiety and things like that. Um, Matt and I had actually conversed about this off the air. Uh, So I don't really have a question. I just kind of have a generalized statement about, you know, what what it looks like and what we are looking at. (laughs) I was was wondering if there what the question was that you were leading up to. But um, (laughs) in case, I do have a question. (laughs) Matt, Matt, um, with what Brody was just describing, what would your message be to teens that are either – being forced in that kind of therapy now, um, they're away from any kind of other distractive um, peer group with school, et cetera. Um, one of the things I think I'm going to theorize that some of them have even found our podcast because they can listen to it in, in private and get information on their own. So what would your message be to somebody who is not able to connect with others but going through that kind of program right now themselves? Yeah, I think the the one thing if I were to, to tell any kid, you know, directly is not to doubt themselves, you know, that what they're, that who they are is true and real, you know, if they're gay, lesbian, trans, or queer, and that, you know, that, that I, that who they, who their identity is real, not to doubt it, you know, when you're so young, because of the negative responses, we, we doubt, we doubt what we're actually experiencing and what we know to, what we know to be true. So uh, I would really want any child or any kid or teenager to know, to hold on to that. Um, it's, it's, it's sacred. It's a part of who you are and you don't want anyone to really take that away from you. Um, if you have access to the internet, uh, that's important. There are so many ways to get support. Um, one of it is just finding friends or commonalities and people you can connect with. You know, we're all, you know, many teenagers are stuck at home and may not have an outlet, and the Internet is a great way to stay connected. Uh, statistically, LGBT people, and this is before the coronavirus, but 
we're online more than um, relatively to heterosexual people because we may come from communities where we don't have any outlets. So the Internet actually has been an incredible source to connect. Um, one, you can go to bornperfect.org you, and connect with us and follow the work and see what's happening. You can, the Trevor Project is a great resource specifically if you are in a crisis where suicide ideation is something that is being considered. Um, and then legally, it, I would go to the National Center for Lesbian Rights Helpline if you actually are in a situation where you're maybe being forced uh, into conversion therapy or in an, or some other circumstance with your guardians. Uh, the, the lawyers at the National Center for Lesbian Rights the lawyers at the National Center for Lesbian Rights will uh, support you legally uh, if there's a case that they believe that they can help you in, in, in a situation they can get you out of. That's excellent. Um, I wanted to ask you, the therapy that you were forced through um, does not sound like it had a huge religious component. Um, is that the case or, or did we just not touch on it? Um, it, there was there was religion at, at times. I really, to my request, um, and this is me me being like a I don't know if it was a smartass or whatnot, but I or me doing my due diligence. I really wanted to experience the change. I wanted I knew how I felt around boys, and I said, great. I want to know that I will feel that same attraction for a female. And, you know, I didn't, you know, I grew up in a conservative community, but I didn't want someone to just tell me to pray uh, and then I'll, I'll get better. And so I was looking for right. the hard evidence throughout my, that's, that's personal to my experience. And so, but yeah, religion is a huge factor and it depends on the therapist. You know, I, I had, I come from a Jewish home, but I also had therapists who had a Mormon background or a Christian background or a more evangelical background and I, and during those five years, uh, most of it was one-on-one -on -one therapy. I did also attend one camp, which is Journey into Manhood, uh, which is a conversion therapy program that still runs today in this, in, throughout the country and Europe. Um, the Jonah trial that Brody just mentioned uh, were some of those boys I, I knew personally from my, my camp experience in Journey into Manhood. And so, yeah, it's, it, you know, conversion therapy, I'll put it this way, uh, regardless of what religious background, whether Jewish or evangelical or otherwise, um, they're all working together. And it's a network and it's an industry uh, in the United States uh, where there's money being made when it's referrals uh, from one to another, whether it's coming from a pastor or from a, a licensed professional. And that's what we're trying to break down and take apart. Wow, yeah. How many um, of the cases that you've been involved with um, in the different states has um, the question of religious freedom been the point of the other side, and how has that been overcome in court? <laughs> so from our opposition, so for example, like at the hearings, that issue comes up every time. Uh, as a track record, we, we, so with the 20 states have passed, yes, it comes up every time. Uh, out, of the, out of the 20 states, we've had five 
federal lawsuits where those states have been challenged. We currently have, but we've won every single time. Um, we have one still ongoing for the state of Maryland. We had won the, the case in Maryland, and it is now in the in appeals. Um, we have had a few city ordinances um, that are being challenged. We've only had one ordinance be struck down, and that was the city of Tampa. And we struck that down. It was struck down in court on the basis that the, the, the judge said, I don't think cities should be doing it. Leave it to the state. Um, which we're, ha- we're happy with that because, you know, the goal of the conservative right, right, the, the right um, of this country, I don't know why that sounded funny, but um, there is an opening to expand religious freedom and religion, uh, freedom of speech. And so this is a, a broader perspective, but basically as the the Trump administration and President Trump himself has appointed more conservative federal judges throughout the country, the landscape is changing. And so mm-hmm. we have an incredible winning streak of lawsuits on the federal level and on the local level. But as judges begin to change, we are worried of the potential, or maybe we're, we're not pessimistic, but we're preparing for the worst. And what that means is we believe that there will be a Supreme Court case in the coming or in the near, in the near future uh, regarding conversion therapy, and uh, I guess another example I can put, I can, I can make, this is going into the weeds with legal stuff. But we passed a New York City ordinance, a New York City law banning conversion therapy, and we actually repealed it. Uh, and this was our learning process. It was the only law out of the, the you know, seventy odd, some odd cities and twenty states where we, instead of just banning it for minors, we actually banned it on the basis of consumer fraud. And as even though we believe conversion therapy is consumer fraud and we've won conversion therapy lawsuits, uh, like the Jonah trial was on the basis of consumer fraud, it doesn't work. Consumer fraud does not work as well as a law versus as it would be seen in a civil case. And so we actually repealed the New York City law the moment we had the New York state law go into effect. And so what we recommend, you know, at conferences and legal or legal organizations and law firms across the country, if you want to start a lawsuit where a former patient is suing a therapist on the basis of consumer fraud, we encourage that. And for elected officials, we're saying (laughs) if you're interested in passing a law that you don't put it on the basis of consumer fraud, but you are just, you're, uh, banning it for minors um, because they are the ones who are most at risk, and that is the safest way we, we keep those laws intact. Right, right. Um, no, excellent work, um, and thank you so much for for sharing that with us. Um, we're starting to wind down our our time here. What is, what should we have asked you that we have not talked about yet? <laughs> we covered a lot. Um, I don't know. What if, um, I think, you know, because of the pandemic, um, and I did cover how, uh, how individuals can reach out and different resources. Um, but if there's, I don't know, I think I just want to say that if there's availability, if you're stuck at home with family members, and this is a time that you can connect and grow with those family members, great. 
Um, and if you're in a position where you, and I encourage that, um, and if you're in a position where you cannot, uh, look for other resources online. And sometimes it doesn't have to be a resource. Better yet, a friend or a relative. It's that one relative, that one friend you can speak to and connect with uh, and check in with. Those are the, in my opinion, really the life-saving relationships that make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I just really want people to know that you, many of us don't may not realize, but we always have that one person we can really go to um, and not to forget that. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for everything you do. Um, you are a hero, and um, I, I can't even begin to tell you the appreciation I feel for your work and what you're accomplishing. Um, you know, 20 states down, 30 to go. Um, we're definitely here for you, and um, can't wait to see the, the end of the road on this, uh, where this will forever become a thing of the past. Um, Brody, any final words from you? I think it's important that, you know, people understand that this is still very much an ongoing issue. It's an issue that desperately needs to be addressed, particularly in jurisdictions where it is still unfortunately allowed to operate. Uh, Matthew, if you tell the readers again how they can find your organization. Um, and also, for those that you want, it's the National Center for Lesbian Rights, NCLR. Uh, in San Francisco, uh, they have a website too. But uh, Matt, if you could give you ours, uh, born perfect, please. Yeah, uh, you can check us out at or visit our site at bornperfect.org. We are also born perfect on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Excellent. Well, thank you, uh, like I said, so much for joining us. Um, Brody, thank you for everything you do. And I want to thank our listeners. We appreciate you very, very much. Uh, Please spread the word about us. Um, And uh, we are available on any of the podcast apps. Just do a search for Rated LGBT Radio and hit subscribe. Um, We love our growing audience. Um, Also, on Saturday nights, uh, please also tune in to our other show, Out in Santa Cruz. You can listen to that on www.ksco.com. Uh, that's a live show, 7 p.m. Pacific Time, 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, although on the, the KSCO website, there are past episodes there as well. Um, that's a little more culture-oriented um, uh, and, and breaking news of the day there. Um, But uh, we will be back here again next week on Rated LGBT Radio, bringing you yet another very important interview. Uh, We don't know what it is yet, but we know that it will be important. Um, Again, thank you so much, Matthew, for being with us today. And as for our listeners, we will talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.